0: Please be seated. As Nathan mentioned this morning, our sermon is based on the chapter in uh, Luke 11, verses 14 through 28. Please hear the reading of God's Word. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him, kept seeking him from him, a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stranger, one stronger than he attacks him, And overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he had said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. If you're
1: visiting with us this morning, um, you might have thought when we read that passage earlier out of Luke chapter 11, um, what in the world have I gotten myself into uh, coming to this place this morning? It's a it's a strange passage. It's a difficult passage. Um, but what we've been doing at Grace Community Church over the past couple of months is we've been looking at the gospel of Luke, but in particular, we've been looking at the parables in Luke's gospel. We've been traveling through Luke's gospel by looking at these stories. Oh, children are dismissed for children's church. I'm sorry. Ages three to six. Head to children's church. Sorry. Um, It's getting all kinds of signals back there. Um, It's like they're directing airplane traffic or something. I didn't know what was going on. Um, But anyway, um, where were we? So we're traveling through Luke looking at the stories of the kingdom, these parables. That Jesus told, and um, and so this is where we've landed this morning. And it does appear to be a very strange passage. I mean, it's filled with what looks like just very mysterious and cryptic language that Jesus uses. Um, And because it's a difficult passage, we're probably not going to be able to answer every question that may be raised this morning for you. But but though this passage is a difficult passage, and it's filled with these strange images and language, um, I want you to see this morning that what Jesus is actually saying here is immensely practical for us. And, and and here's why. I kind of hate to start so abruptly this morning, but listen, all of us, all of us want to change. You know, we want there to be even hope for change in our lives, right? Um, Many of us, you know, I I know that many of us have gone through periods of time where we have ignored that deep longing within us for change. And I and I get that. Um, But I'm talking about the deepest longings of our hearts. You know, longings that for a time can be suppressed and repressed, but you can't ever really get rid of them. You and I, we long to know. That we can change, because you see in our most sober moments of life, right when we are thinking the most clearly about our lives, we want to believe that we can change, that we can grow, that we that our lives can move in a new and different direction, that we can become more of the person we want to be more of the person we feel like we should be in this life. and I, I want you to understand that what I'm talking about here is not not a Christian thing. This is a humanity thing, right? We have this inkling of what we want to be. And, and we want to believe that we can move in the direction of becoming what we were meant to be in this life. Some of you have heard me use this little illustration of mine before. I apologize for using it so many times. But I think it sets us up well for understanding what Jesus says in this passage. You know... I was a science major in college, so I have all this science. Use, you know, I, I don't ever use it. So every once in a while, I've got to pull it out. And, uh, you know, in the realm of physics, um, Isaac Newton, he came up with these, his three laws of motion, right? And the first law of motion, we've come to know as the law of inertia, right? And, and, and that, that first law is stated like this, that every object persists in its state of rest Or uniform motion in a straight line unless, unless it is compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it, right? It's a very simple law. Objects stay at rest. They don't move or or they at least stay in uniform motion and don't change unless something from the outside comes and causes that change to occur. Like this bulletin. I I place it here on this this podium here. And it's not going to move. Unless some force comes from outside of it. And compels that change. Right? And you see in our passage. Jesus he makes this startling. Even divisive claim in this passage. Right? It's in verse 23. He says whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. How could Jesus. How could he make such a sweeping. Divisive startling claim like that is because Jesus is saying here in this passage that though you want to change, though you hunger for change, and at times you find yourself even desperate just to believe that change is possible. Jesus is saying you will never, you will never really change unless someone from the outside comes and compels that change in your life. He's saying, if you are not with me, you will remain against me. But that's also the good news of what Jesus is saying here in this passage, because in the end, he is saying I alone can compel that change and move you in the direction of becoming what you are meant to be in this life. Why? Because as we'll see in this passage, Jesus says that he is the only one who is stronger than the strong man, right? He is the one who can impress his force in your life and compel change in your life and really set you free to change. So here we go. I want us to look at this passage and see three things here. I want us to see the threatening reality of evil, the attempt to master evil and the victory over evil. Okay. first, the threatening reality of evil. We don't have a ton of time to delve into all this. And I may open more cans than I'm able to shut, put the lid on. But we've got to deal with, you know, the elephant in the room uh, when it comes to this passage. And it's important that we realize what's going on in this story. I mean, the elephant in the room is this candid discussion that's had in this passage about real, personal, evil, demonic forces that work in the world. Right. This whole discussion is sparked by Jesus. Casting out the demon from this man who's been made mute by this demon. And Jesus' critics responded by saying that Jesus was casting out these demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And for these guys, that was a a way to reference the work of Satan, right? And I say it's the elephant in the room because many of us don't know what we think about all of this, right? And maybe we often try to dismiss it too quickly. I mean, this was a long time ago. You know, do we really believe in this stuff anymore, I mean, it certainly seems to be in contradiction with a a very scientific view of the world. And, And so maybe, you know, one way we dismiss it too quickly is through a bit of chronological arrogance, really, you know. And what I mean by that is, sure, these guys, even Jesus, you know, they talked about everything being, you know, demonic forces and all this kind of stuff at work in the world. You know, that was what they attributed everything to back in the day. Right. Their world was just so limited. Now we know of biological and physical and scientific explanations now for things that these these men would have attributed to forces of evil. The problem with that quick dismissal is just this. It's an unfair characterization of these guys, and especially of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels. I mean, when you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus is all the time making very, very clear distinctions. I mean, because an awful lot of the time, he heals sicknesses and diseases and infirmities without ever attributing it to evil forces at work in the world. On one occasion, you know, Jesus' disciples, some of you may remember this story, they his disciples brought him a blind man, right? And they said, and they said very pointedly, and perhaps even suspiciously, on, on their, from their perspective, right? What caused the blindness? Was it this man's sin or his parents' sin? And you remember what Jesus said? He basically just said, neither. It wasn't. A, it wasn't because of evil forces. See, you can't be too quick to dismiss all this talk about demonic forces and personal evil because Jesus wasn't just walking around attributing everything to that. He understood and made distinctions about the evil that was at work in the world. And, and I want to say one other thing about, here about evil. Whether you're, you are a Christian or not this morning, you have to deal. We all have to deal with a problem of evil at work in the world. You know, Bart Ehrman is professor at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he is one of the leading atheists in our country today. And, and you might not be surprised to find that one of his main arguments against Christianity and the Bible is the problem of evil, right? He's got a whole book. Right? about the problem of evil and suffering. You So you take a look around you, right? You read your newspaper or you flip on your favorite news source, CNN or Fox News or whatever. And the misery and the suffering around the world and the Holocaust and the genocides, right? And the abuse and the violence and the injustice and on and on and on, it gets paraded before you. Everywhere we look, we see the brokenness of this world and we see the evil in this world. And just a brief quote from him, and you'll see, see what I'm talking about, how he thinks this is an argument against the Bible and Christianity. He wrote this, My view is that it is impossible to reconcile the pain and misery all about us if there is a good and all-powerful God in charge of the world. But here's what I think, along with a lot of others. The evil that Jesus saw, and the evil that He named, the evil that we see and that we can name, It's actually evidence of a good and all-powerful God at work in the world. I can't give you the whole argument here, but here's just a piece from C.S. Lewis who wrote this. My argument against God was that the universe... He's talking about before he became a believer. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. You see what he's saying? The reason we call some things evil is because we have an understanding of the good. Right? Right? We call some things wicked and rightly so because all of us innately understand that there must be a standard in this world. And where does that standard come from? But from a God who is outside of this world with an objective standard of right and wrong, evil and good. But listen, in the end, in the end, you see that Jesus doesn't think about evil just in terms of the, you know, the abstract or impersonal or natural concepts, right? Evil forces are at work in the world, Jesus saying. Real, personal, evil forces. Several chapters over, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus was speaking with Simon Peter. And I, I wish that I could have seen the look on Peter's face when Jesus said this to him. Because he said, Jesus said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. I mean, that's a, a gulp moment in your life. Satan's asking about me. He wants to master me. Personal evil forces are at work seeking to master you, Jesus is saying. Now, thankfully, Jesus very quickly told Simon that, G, that he would not allow that. And you know, there's a lot of rabbit trails that I, I wish that I could trace more fully this morning. But look, we all recognize that evil is at work in this world. But do you understand that the evil that is at work in this world is not harmless or abstract? That it is seeking to have you. That it is seeking to master you. Right? Do you understand the threatening reality of evil at work in the world? Threatening to you and to me. Now second, I want us to consider the attempt to master evil. I want us to take a look and deal with what at first sight probably appears to be the most unusual and cryptic and mysterious verses of this passage in verses 24 through 26. You see, here Jesus, he's talking about an unclean spirit, right? That, that leaves a person and wanders restlessly, right? But eventually returns and brings with it seven times as much evil, right? It, with him and comes back. Where in the world does Jesus get this strange illustration from? What in the world is Jesus talking about here? I don't know if you caught it or not when we read this passage earlier. But in verse 19, Jesus asked this question. He asked, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? You see, the Pharisees, they were also performing exorcisms of a sort back in this time. Right. And they were working to rid people of evil in their lives. And see, we live in a world where evil is a reality. And so it makes sense that we are always looking for ways to deal with evil, for ways to master evil, ways to cope with evil, ways to rid ourselves of evil. And here in particular, in these strange verses, Jesus is saying that it is possible for you. That it is possible for you to cast out your demons and gain self-control in your life without ever coming into his kingdom. Right? If you think about it. There are lots of tools out there that you can use to clean up and sweep your house clean. To put your house in order and gain self-control, right? There are tools that you can use to better manage your temper if you find yourself losing control, right? There are lots of principles that you can use to put your marriage back together when it it has started to fall apart. Right, there are strategies you can employ in your life to help you overcome addictions in this life to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography. There are some solid principles out there for being a better steward with your money. Right, so your money that so often seems out of control in your life. I can teach you some very practical steps about how to communicate better with one another. Right, but listen to me carefully. I'm not knocking any of those tools or principles. as somebody else put it, we are multidimensional beings, right? We are complex people, right? And so those tools can be extremely helpful to us. But you see, Jesus is stating the problem for you in these verses, namely in verse 25. And when it comes, speaking of the evil, it finds the house swept and put in order. If you clean your life up and you gain some self-control in your life, But Jesus is saying, but you don't have anything to put in its place. You have opened yourself up to a world of evil in your life. Seven times as much, Jesus says. And you know why? It's because in your attempt and mine to master evil, we almost always forget something very, very crucial about our humanity. And it's this. We've got to serve something in this life an author named Kent Hughes writes about this passage that a vacuum has to be filled with something. I mean, you've heard that statement before, how nature abhors a vacuum, right? And Jesus is saying here, your soul abhors a vacuum. Another author, Philip Ryken, he writes about this passage, if all we ever have are self-made attempts at personal reformation, we will end up worse off Than ever before. How so? You have to serve something. You've got to serve something in this life. So you know you figure out. How to jury rig your temper. And find ways to stuff your anger. Right? Because it is an acceptable behavior. And isn't it possible. That if you jury rig your heart. Because of the fear of what others think. About your behavior. That you might in fact be opening yourself up. To all kinds of other bigger problems in your life. Say in your relationships that demand intimacy and vulnerability. Right? I mean, it's a, think about this. If you jury rig your addictions from the fear of what others will think about you, do you. Isn't it possible that your secrets will come back and unleash an even greater evil in your life? That you will end up being mastered instead by the fear of what others think of you. You know, I, I heard another great example of this this past week. You know, you you tell your young son, "Real men don't cry," right? And as he listen, as he learns to use fear, the fear of looking weak, to master himself, isn't it possible? that you have set him up for an even greater danger down the road when his wife one day wants intimacy and vulnerability from him. Reform your practice, right? Make attempts to master evil and gain self-control through personal reformation and sweep your house clean. But never forget, in all your attempts to master evil, your soul abhors a vacuum. You've got to serve some something. Which, of course, brings me to Bob Dylan, right? It's a, it's a long, long song, <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to sing it for you. Um, but listen to just a few lines, right? He says, you, you may like to game, you, may, you might like to dance, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, you might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage, you might have drugs at your command, women in a cage, you may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you thief. You may be rich or you may be poor. You may be blind or you may be lame. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might be somebody's landlord. I don't like this one very much, but you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. Right? And you get the idea. So here's here's Dylan's brilliant chorus to everything that he said there. No matter who you are, right? Bob Dylan sings this, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, listen, all those different you know, stations in life and occupations and desires in life and so on. And this is how Dylan concludes that chorus. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It's inescapable. And Dylan was right. The soul abhors a vacuum. Make attempts to master your evil, but rest assured of this. You're going to have to serve somebody. And Dylan and Jesus are saying this, making the same startling claim. It will either be the devil or the Lord. Remember verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You will you're going to start hearing it more and more right it, but more more and more people are going to start claiming to be agnostic if you haven't heard this already right and it's this philosophical position of doubt and skepticism right to any claim true, claim of truth and it's this view that is held as a, a slightly superior right aloof position in life right and it's a view and, and it's a view that's held to be superior because it's this fancy description for fence-sitting, right? It's an, it's, an imagined, it's an imagined position of objectivity where you can, you can look from your aloof position at any truth claim and you can see through that truth claim. You know, some here in this passage were certainly hostile to Jesus, but others were merely skeptical and aloof, right? Verse 16. And Jesus is saying, no one, no one can sit on the fence. That option is not open to any of you. You are either with me or against me, Jesus is saying. Why? Because you're going to have to serve somebody. Your soul abhors a vacuum. So ask yourself this question. In your attempt to master evil in your life, are you opening yourself up to being mastered by an even greater evil in your life? finally, we come to the last point, victory over evil. Now, admittedly, we've worked our way into a difficult position this morning. And the th- it's because the, we're talking about the threatening reality of evil at work in the world. But all our attempts to master evil only set us up for more evil, right? So can anyone change? I mean, because some of you were thinking, you know, temper, check, I got that. I got that problem, right? Pornography, I got that problem. Right. Marriage problems. I got that problem. Addictions. I got that problem and a whole lot of other things we we didn't mention, but could have, you know, about your money and approval and security and your insecurities and your fears. And really, your fears really are a great way to find out what evil plagues you in this life, because whatever you fear losing in this life or whatever you fear not getting or whatever you fear missing out on in this life and not having enough of those are the things that are most likely the things you wish you could change in your life. Right? Those are the things you wish you could change. But you know this. Those are the things that have the most power in your life. So you're hearing all these things. You know, check, check, check. But if personal reformation won't really change me, what will? I'm very glad you asked. Um, very glad you asked because that's why we have a final point And why Jesus talked about. A divided house and a kingdom. And a man stronger than the strong man, right? Real quickly then in verses 17 through 19, Jesus is simply shooting holes in this logic that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or Satan. You know, he's just saying it just doesn't make any sense, right? Satan would be undermining himself if that were the case. No, that can't be true. He can't be defeating evil by evil. But then Jesus in verse 21, he gives us another parable. Right? And it's an illustration of why Jesus was able to cast out this demon. And the illustration he gives goes like this There's a strong man who protects and guards his house, his palace. The strong man is Satan, and the strong man's palace is a way of referring to Satan's kingdom of darkness and of evil in captivity. And his goods and spoils are those he has held in bondage in captivity. To evil and sin and darkness. And Jesus was saying, that strong man's palace is safe. It is safe until until someone someone stronger than that strong man comes and overpowers and is victorious over that strong man. And when that happens, Jesus says, "The prisoner goes free. Jesus was saying, I am the one who is stronger than the strong man. You read through the Gospels and you will see that Jesus' life was a testimony to this, right? I mean, all those miracles that he performed, that you hear the healings and all this kind of stuff and raising people from the dead. Right. It was was bearing testimony to this, that he (coughs) that he is the one who is stronger than disease, that he is the one who is stronger than your infirmities that he is the one who is stronger even even than death, right? And more than that, Jesus was saying here, I am the one who is stronger than evil, stronger than wickedness, and stronger than the brokenness that is in your life. I mean, that little phrase that Jesus throws out in this passage about casting out demons by the finger of God, it's a reference to the story of the Exodus, right? In Exodus chapter 8, where that same phrase is used. And it's a description of when God rescued his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt. He came and he brought deliverance by his finger. He is the one who is stronger than the strong man who can set you free. Jesus was saying, unless I come and plunder the strong man's house, you will never be free to change in this life. And he's also saying this, when you realize and believe that I have come, To plunder the strong man's house. You will be free. You will be free to become something different. Free to become what you were meant to be. But here's the question. How does that really work? How does that play out in your life? There is this amazing sermon that was preached hundreds of years ago. by Maybe not hundreds, a couple hundred years ago. By a guy named Thomas Chalmers. It would definitely benefit you to go and find this sermon Online and read the sermon. The title of the sermon was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in that sermon, he talks about how the best way, how the best way to make someone miserable in this life is to say to that person, just stop desiring evil. Just stop it. You know? Just stop wanting sin. Just stop desiring wickedness he says, that's the best way to make someone miserable. Why? Because written into your humanity is this truth. The soul abhors a vacuum. You are made to desire, made to delight in something. You're going to have to serve someone. And and so Chalmers went on to say in the sermon of his, his this. He says, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. And he goes on. Thus it is, that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel. And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. He says, on the tenure of do this and live, a spirit of fearfulness is sure to enter. And the jealousies of a legal bargain chase away all confidence from the intercourse between God and man. One more little piece of the quote. It's only when, as in the gospel, acceptance is bestowed as a present, without money and without price, that the security which man feels in God is placed beyond the reach of disturbance. Right. Ch- Ch- and Chalmers, one other little thing. Chalmers goes on to say that when you get this, right, when, when your house is not simply swept clean and empty, But when the love of God and the power of God breaks upon your heart, then and only then, he says, will you be awakened to the charms of a new moral existence? See, you know it without without me even needing to say it, because you have tried. Right. You can't change yourself. You've made attempt after attempt after attempt at self-reformation and felt how flat you fall and fail. Right? Even even open to greater evil in your life. No, to truly change, someone from the outside has to come and compel that change in your life. But not just anyone. Someone stronger than the strong man. Someone strong enough to defeat evil. What's the story of the Bible about in the end? I mean, we were talking about all this problem of evil stuff at the beginning, right? What's the story of the Bible? It is not a story in the end meant to answer all the questions you have about the problem of evil. The Bible, from cover to cover, in the end, is really this. It's a story about what the good and all-powerful God is doing about the evil at work in this world. And what he has done about the evil in this world through his son. So what has he done? He has sent his son into the world to plunder the strong man's house. And set the captives free. And how did he do that? His son came. And on the cross. Through evil. Right? The perfect man was crucified. And he became sin. And the deep darkness fell upon him. He so loved you. That he took the deep darkness in your place. He suffered. And died the death. You and I should have died. But then, of course, read through the Gospels. He rose from the dead. Stronger than evil. Stronger than brokenness. Stronger than even death itself. And why? So that you would know that you are loved beyond compare. Here's what I'm saying. You get that truth deep into your heart you find your heart beating in love for the one who loved you like that and you will find how the love of what is good expels the love of what is evil and you will be awakened to the charms of a new moral existence then and only then will you find the freedom to change in this life let's pray again. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for giving us Your Word, a light unto our path. We thank You for even the hard and difficult sayings of Jesus. Hard sayings like this that it's just, to be honest, it's hard to get our minds around at times. Hard to understand. But we, we do confess that we are aware That there is evil in this world. That this world is broken and we are broken. And that evil threatens to have us. And Father, we pray that You would forgive us. Forgive us for all the ways we have sought to master evil in our lives without running to Jesus. And I pray that You would help us to run into the arms of our Savior. Who through the evil intentions of men. Conquered evil itself. But Father let us know. And make us aware. Of how free we are in Jesus. The one stronger than the strong man. Who came. And plundered the strong man's house. And set us free. And how we pray that the love of what is good and the love of You would expel the evil in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.